I, I think it is important that we talk about like this idea of one-hit wonders are these songs that hit that we all know, and yet there's no other big hits from these artists whatsoever for the rest of their time. So when you guess REM, it's like, oh, they got lots of hits. These are one-hit wonders. And what's great is that when we look at the Bible, there's a 1,189 chapters in it, and five of them are one-hit wonders. They're entire books that are made up of just a single chapter. And we have looked already at two of the 66, or two of the five that are one-hit wonders. We've looked at Obadiah and Philemon in the New Testament, Obadiah in the Old Testament. And today, we're going to be jumping into the letter that uh, Jeremy had read for us, Jeremy the Elder, uh, had read for us. And that's not an age thing, but we'll go with it. And it's going to be Second John. It'll be all the way to the right-hand side of your Bible. And it's obviously, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn there. It's the second of three letters that the Apostle John had written. Uh, and in these three letters, the first one, which is a five chapters, obviously not a one-hit wonder. And then Second John and Third John are these very tiny little letters that are almost like rushed through in script to make sure that they get to... The, uh, the intended audience. And I will tell you that the more time this week that I have spent in this letter, the more I've realized how relevant it is for today, for this very moment that we live in. And so let's dive in to Second John. You ready? The greeting to this letter is a little bit odd. And when you read it, it, it it's kind of like, wait, what's going on here? It starts out by saying, this letter is from John the Elder. And Jeremy kind of joked, like, wait a minute, this is, it feels weird to say this, and like, John the Elder, well, it's a title. That is actually what's cool about this, is John is indicating his title, not his age. I will tell you when he's writing this, he is old, okay? So he is old when he's writing it, but um, you have to think about this, because when he's using the word elder here, he's, he's referring to his role, which is pastor, and so you have to think of John in this moment as a pastor. And we know if you just have been soaping with us as we were reading through scripture day by day, we read Titus. And this week, there's lots of details on what an elder or a pastor is and what they're supposed to do. I don't need to go into all of them, but what's important for us to pick up from Titus that an elder would do is found in verses 9 and 10 of the first chapter of his letter. And it says, he, and he's talking about an elder, must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching, show those who oppose it where they're wrong, for there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. You see, part of an elder's role in a church is to have a strong belief and have a strong handle on the scriptures. They need to know what's in here, not for the purpose of flexing it over people and using it as a hammer to put it down on people, but instead their call is to encourage the church with these scriptures and then to oppose or to correct people when they're starting to useless talk about scriptures, when it is not theologically correct. An elder's job is to step in and say, wait a second, TV timeout, I think something's off here. Can we talk about that? How did you get to that point? And so John, the elder, is doing both for this community that he's writing to. He's encouraging them and he's correcting them. But who is he writing to? It's a little weird. He says in verses 1 and 2, he says, I'm writing to the chosen lady and to her children. 
with whom I, with whom I love in the, tr- in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. You see, we're used to reading the letters that we have in the New Testament that are addressed to the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, the church in Corinth. And this one is weird because it's like, this is to the chosen lady and her children. It just sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds odd. Well, if I say it like that, yes, it does sound weird. This is not just some random woman that John is writing to. What we need to understand in the address to this is that John is writing from the city of Ephesus, and as he's writing this letter, he's writing to a church. But the church itself and all the followers of Jesus, because we're talking about 85 CE right now, and in this time, followers of Jesus were hugely persecuted. I mean, they were being rounded up and tortured and killed, and it was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. So when he says to the chosen lady and her children, he's using code in case the letter got intercepted, right? They would disguise their letters for protection. Does that make sense? Okay, it's, it's really, really important. Let's jump down to verse 4. In verse 4, it says, How happy I was to meet some of your children and to find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. I am writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us, to love one another, just as you have heard from the beginning. You see, John had met followers of Jesus while he was in Ephesus all over, and he begins to write to them, and and he says, I know about how well you love people. I get that. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But right up front in his letter, he says, yes, I know that you love people, but what I'm about to tell you, you already know. I'm going to remind you of something you already know. Here's the big reveal. We should love one another just as you have heard from the beginning. You should love one another just as you heard from the beginning. I will be really transparent that I feel a kindred spirit with John this week as I have read this. I don't think that there is anything in this message today that will be new to most of you. No aha moments. No, wow, that's completely new. My goal this morning is to simply remind you of what Jesus said, just like John was doing for the church that he's writing to. Crossbridge, we should be loving each other. This is the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. And he clearly commanded us to do this. John hasn't officially written the biography of Jesus yet that we read and we reference so much. Uh, It's about five years away, so my guess is he has started to put down some notes like any good biographer would. But as he has taught different people who have chosen to follow Jesus about what Jesus said, I'm confident because of how much the gospel of John or the biography of Jesus written by him, in, in that story itself, how much he records from the Last Supper and their conversations around a table together for Passover. And, and I'm sure that he over and over and over told people constantly of what he said. And it's at that table where Jesus gave the disciples the platinum command. He says this in John 13, 
This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Okay, pay attention. This is to the disciples. They've got all these commands that they've known. I'm giving you a new commandment. These are the words of Jesus. The new commandment is love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. You see, Jesus was serious. Love each other. Most of us are familiar with the golden rule, right? What is the golden rule? Yeah, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is actually like, it's the golden rule. It is across every faith in some way, shape, or form. Every other major religion has this type of phrasing in their holy scriptures. It's commanded in Judaism, in Islam, in Baha'i, in Hinduism, Buddhism. Even Wiccans have a form of this in their scriptures that talk about treating people as you want to be treated. It's a good rule of life, right? But Jesus takes this golden rule, like just do that, and he elevates it to a platinum rule, something that is even bigger, a command for us to follow, and I need you to love each other. How are you supposed to love each other? Just as I have loved you. How am I supposed to love just as I have loved you? Well, what does love look like? Well, how have I loved you? That's how you should love. We're no longer thinking and treating others, thinking about others and treating others the way that we would want to be treated. Our command from Jesus is to love the way that he loved us. And that this type of love this is what's going to set his followers apart and the rest of the world will be, def- they will see how they love and go, oh, that's because they're following him. It's not just about treating people as they want to be treated. It's about loving sacrificially. Christ-like love is what sets us apart as his followers. And in verse 6, I love in this letter, John tells us exactly what that means. He says, love means doing what God has commanded us. And he's commanded us to love one another, just as you have heard from the beginning. Love means obedience and embracing the truth. Jesus' love for us and his love for the disciples is rooted in the obedience to what God was asking him to do. He would do that. He was obedient to the truth. He was committed to the scriptures and seeing them taught and lived out in the most loving way possible. This means that love is reminding each other of the truth when we forget it. Love is all about reminding each other of the truth when we forget it. Does anybody forget what's in Scripture often besides me? That you forget what it says and you need to be reminded that's what love looks like. And and this is the elder heart that John is writing with and why he's just, it's so funny, if you look at the story of John, he fires this off so quick and rushed in comparison to his other stuff. And and he's going to be visiting them soon. Why would he fire this off so quick? Well, here's why. Because there was a false teaching that was hitting the church that could not wait to be addressed. And and it was a heresy that was being taught. It was called Gnosticism. Okay, Gnosticism. It wasn't called that at the time. It was just called, like, this is another interpretation of the teachings that we have. How many of you have ever heard that word Gnosticism before? Okay, now if you're like, wait a second. Why aren't you saying the G? Because maybe it's Italian, like gnocchi, okay? You just drop the G, and, and that's how you say it. Uh, it's actually a Greek word. It's a Greek noun that uh, gnosis is the root of that, which means knowledge or awareness. Uh, it's not usually associated with how much you, you know intellectually, 
Um, but really, it's about how much awareness you have of yourself. It's more ethereal. It's very spiritual. It is not about the body, but it is about the spirit. And while that's like, oh, that's not a bad thing. You're right. It's not a bad thing. But John sees that there's a danger that this type of thinking is having in the church. And he says this in verse 11. He says, I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God, but anyone who remains in the teachings of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? You see, it was normal for teachers and preachers to go from town to town in this time. It was, it was just, we'll talk way, a lot more about that next week in 3 John in his next letter, but it was just normal. Some of these teachers, when they came in, it was, they would be welcomed into the homes of the church, they would be gathered up, and they would be cared for, and then they'd have this platform to teach the church, to influence the church. And what John's issue is, is not that like, oh, you're not caring enough for the 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 preacher who's coming in, he said, no, no, that's not the problem. You're doing all the right things and caring. John, John's issue is with the teaching that's being heard. I mean, it, it sounded good, but it wasn't accurate. It wasn't right. And this tore John up so much that he fires off this letter because he loves this church. And he carries the weight of it because he's trying to love them now like Christ loves them. They're not going to like receiving this letter. Guys, you got to stop this. Like, who likes receiving correction? None of us. It puts us at odds. And, and now there's people coming into this church teaching that Jesus was not who Jesus said he was. Right? We believe that God sent his only son in human form, that he was human, 100% human, right? I'm not trying to trick you. <laughs> this is kind of like, this is essential. If we need to focus on this, I will scrap the rest of what we're going. God sent his only son to the earth to be born of a virgin, and he was 100% human. This is the foundational for us, okay? And while he's 100% human, he's also 100% God. If you're confused, good. Me too. But the mystery of our faith is we believe in two 100%s that make 100%. Okay, I, I, I don't understand God's math, but I know it works because he's God. And what Gnosticism was, was saying that Jesus was fully God, but not fully man, because the human flesh is a hot mess, and it's sinful, it's disgusting, and you make the worst decisions because of your flesh, so therefore, Jesus could never have come in the flesh, because it wouldn't have worked, because it's sinful. He could not be sinless if he was born in the flesh. Now, the logic is pretty, pretty solid. I mean, it's, it's pretty good. But you see that the problem is, if he didn't come in the flesh, 
then he could not be sacrificed and give up his life willingly for our sin. You have to have a flesh. You have to have a body. And, and Gnosticism gets super, super complex. But the people in the church were eating it up. They were loving it. I mean, they were all in for viewing Jesus a little bit differently. Spo- you know, focusing in on this spiritual enlightenment was much more important because rejecting the body and its desires had this strong appeal, and it meant that your battle wasn't so much with your body as it was for your spirit. Can I tell you this still is part of the church today, that this teaching is still present this was heresy, though. It was teaching that was contrary to what we know is true according to the scriptures. And here's the toughest part about these false teachings. Can I just be super candid here? It's, it's that most of the danger, most dangerous heresies that you and I will come across are so close to the truth. So close. But they're not. They're not the truth. Yes, We are born into sin, right? We are born sinful people because Romans 3 tells us that. And we're constantly battling with our physical bodies, our own desires. Absolutely. We need to be renewing our minds and centering ourselves on what Christ says. That's Romans 12. We need to emotionally, physically, mentally uh, just take all that we have and submit it to the cross and say, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do what I can't do. And so there is some spiritual while physical it's both right all of it's true but if jesus didn't come in the flesh then we have a problem this is too important he's fully god and fully man the teaching was just a little bit off but it was enough does that make sense are you with me it's a really a good thing we don't have to worry about a lot more heresies in our church than this right (laughs) yeah i mean That doesn't hit us now. There's no need for us to know what's in the scriptures inside and out for ourselves. Because let me just tell you, the teaching of the church today is about as sound as it's ever been. It is rock solid. I mean, we've had 2,000 years. Well, probably not. We've had like 1,700 years to perfect this baby. We got it. We've all got it. And we know what to believe. We know what's in our Bible. All of us. Our theology is perfect, isn't it? Yeah. Some of you are like, what's theology? It's what you think about God. It's what you know about God. I wish this was true. Oh, do I wish this was true, but it is not. There's so much false teaching around us today. It's unreal. And this is where my heart and my spirit completely connect with John. You know, there's a, uh, a, an organization called the State of Theology, and every two years, they put out the same exact survey of about like 35, 36 questions, and they say, you know, uh, true or false? How much do you, you know, disagree with this to agree with this? You know, they, and they, they give the statement, this is absolutely, I disagree, absolutely I agree, or somewhere in between. The last survey that they did was 2022. And I will tell you, they break down the data in so many different ways. So the, the Bible nerd in me and the numbers nerd in me spent too much time on this site (laughs) because it was fun. It was fun. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to read a statement, and I am going to ask you not to respond. I'm going to ask you not to respond. You can come up in your head with, uh, I strongly disagree. I disagree. I'm neutral on this. I agree, or I strongly agree with this. Okay, so you got your, um, you got your, your span there. And so just 
answer this first question. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Would you believe that almost 70% of professing Christ followers, 70% agree with this statement, and 53% of evangelicals, when you break that number down, go, absolutely, I agree with that. That's haunting to me, because Proverbs 15 tells us that the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. He delights in the prayers of the upright. Jesus was as crystal clear as you can get, and John records it when he records Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Right? Here's the truth. As followers of Jesus, we don't believe everyone will be in paradise when they die. Only those who have submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and they have accepted his forgiveness for their sins provided by his blood on the cross. That's what we believe, which means our love for people should be extended because good theology will make us love people more and want to help them. But if it's like, oh, you do you, that's okay, Get, you know, whatever. No, 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 that doesn't work that way. Well, it'd be nice, but it's not true. Agree or disagree, where would you find yourself? Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of Christians in America said, yes, I agree with that. If you find yourself agreeing with this, you will probably fit better in the Mormon church or the Jehovah Witnesses church who believe that Jesus was created by God. He did not always exist. But our scriptures are as clear as could be on this. Colossians 2 contains one of the most beautiful hymns and poetry ever to a church that clearly states that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, than that he existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation, that through him, for him, that God created everything in the heavenly realms and, and on earth, and he existed before anything else existed, and he holds all creation together. He has always existed. He was not created by God. He is God. As followers of Jesus, Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is existing before creation. And he holds it all together. This is our truth. Agree or disagree, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. The Bible, like all sacred writing, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Over half of the U.S. adults surveyed said, I agree with this. Over half. 26% of those were evangelicals. That means that one in four who would call themselves uh, a follower of Jesus, who would go to a church similar to ours, would say, no, nah, I don't believe that the Bible is true. Let me tell you that all scripture is God-breathed, and we need this as our foundation. It is more trustworthy than anything else that you will ever hear from me or anybody else who preaches. This is where our truth is found. Half of the issues that we have in church are not because we can't agree on what scripture says, but we don't agree on the role that the Bible should play in each of our faiths. 
If this carries the same weight as Plato or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, we're in trouble. We cannot just take and leave what we don't like in here. Do I like everything I read? No. But is it the truth? Yes. As followers of Jesus, we must conform our lives to what Scripture says rather than twist Scripture to conform to us. You see, sometimes false teaching is only a little bit off. And that's what makes it so dangerous. And when John heard that his people were teaching that Jesus was not who he said he was, God himself in human form, fully God, fully human, he was not having it. And look what he calls him in verse 7. He clearly says such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. He's not saying they are the antichrist, this end times enemy of our returning king. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying they're an antichrist. They are someone who stands up against Christ, who he was, what he can came to do and what he said about himself, they disagree. John knows that these teachers are making their rounds, going from community to community, and instead of just letting it slide, his love for the church compels him, rooted in this platinum command to love others like Christ has loved us, and it compels him to bring correction to the church. Because what love is, love is reminding each other of the truth when we forget it. We need this so badly today. At Crossbridge, we take this so seriously. I don't have and will not allow our elders together and myself, we will not allow someone to come onto this stage to teach the word of God without having reviewed every word of the message that's going to be said. Because this matters. This matters, and an elder's job is to make sure that we're keeping a good handle on the theology of our church and correcting and does that mean we have to be like, oh, that's way off, you know, Samsonite, change it? No. Very rarely because we care about what the Bible says and we take it seriously. Yes, we want every message to be engaging. We want them to be relevant. We want them to be applicable. All of that is true. But if it's not theologically accurate, then what do we have? Just a good talk. You can go watch TED Talks if you want that. Today, what fears me, what makes me fear the most, or scared the most is that we don't have to wait for false teachers to come here because we run to them. We run to teachers that make us feel better about topics we're uncomfortable with. And, and, and it's just a little bit different. I have people that I like to listen to that, that would make me feel better about what I believe in this area, so I'm going to lean into that because Pastor Jimmy makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I make everybody uncomfortable, including myself. Welcome. We could sit on our phone and wait for the most random person, not knowing where they came from, who they're vetted by, who holds them accountable on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube to tell us what we want to hear. We don't have to run or wait for them to come to us. They'll meet you at home. They're already there. I am begging you, do not lean into teaching that just makes you feel good about what you believe. Do not conform scriptures to what you want. Let them conform you. The only way that you're going to do this is if you take the scripture seriously. I cannot make you do that. Your parents cannot make you do that. Your siblings can't make you do it. Your spouse can't make you do it. No one.
can make you take this seriously outside of you. This is on you now. Your theology, your study of God, your, your, what you think about him really matters. And, and if you're thinking right now, wait a second, Jimmy, you said the elders are supposed to guard the theology of the church, right? You, yes, yes. But they cannot guard your personal theology. They aren't with you. When your false teacher meets you at home to scan through things, this is on you. I love what a famous author, R.C. Sproul, has to say. He says, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nonetheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we're going to be theologians, but whether we're going to be good theologians or bad ones. Crossbridge, I love you, but I have been so convicted by this letter personally and corporately, because we are surrounded by teaching that does not match up. And I am begging you to take every word that I say and you bring it back to scripture and ask God, is this accurate? Is it? Question everything that's taught, but you can't do that if you don't know the word. You can't do that if it's not part of what you think, eat, breathe. And it's like, well, come on. Like, listen, I'm begging you, test it, test it, test it. I want you to know more about the Bible than you do about what, what time a sports team plays, what their averages are with this. I want you to know more about Scripture than you do about Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians. I want you to know more about Scripture than you do about video games and what pieces work best with what and what strategy works. I want you to know more about the Bible than you do about the people in your neighborhood and the gossip that goes around and the stories that you could share and pass on. I want you to know more about the Bible than anything else, not so that you're the smartest person in the room, but so that you know how to encourage those around you with the words of Jesus, and so that you know how, when false teaching comes, to go, wait a second, that sounds kind of right, but it's off. Too many of us look at Scripture and go, this is a stupid chore. I'm tired. I don't understand this. This is dumb. It makes no sense to me. You see, love is going to be reminding each other of the truth when we forget it. And the truth this morning is I know it's hard to read scripture sometimes. And I'm not telling you you have to do this to follow Jesus. But I don't think you can follow Jesus if you don't know scripture. What gospel will you really be living? This is the heart of the gospel. And so, I will end with what Jesus tells us. So I'm giving you a new command, Jesus says. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Love is reminding each other of the truth when we forget it. Can I ask you, does the world see you loving this way? Would the way that you love other followers of Christ, and I'm gonna, it's not, but I'm really gonna poke for a second here, especially the way that you treat and talk about other Christian denominations or tribes, would they recognize love the way that Jesus talks about it here? Or would they go, oh man, yeah, those and you fill in your denomination are pretty weird. Do the words that we speak about each other invite the world to know the love of Christ? I don't think so in our country. But 
but I do think so at Crossbridge. Thank you for loving each other. Thank you for encouraging each other. Thank you for trying to remind each other. I hear stories about your life groups where there's questions and there's not shame with a question, but there's, hey, can we explore this more to understand it? Uh, I don't understand what these people believe. Oh, here, check this out. We can explore this together. Uh, I'm really struggling with this passage. Oh, me too. What do we do? I don't know. Let's bug the elders about it. Great, go do that. You, you do encourage each other. When we partner with other denominations, you celebrate that with us because you know they love Jesus. Maybe one or two theological things are different, but they're not so divisive that we can't love Christ in our community together. Amen? If we don't start showing love like Christ does, where we're saying, ah, that one, I can roll on that one right now. That's not going to question who Jesus is. This is what love looks like. I fear that too many of us are scared of that, and so we don't want to get into a life group. We don't want to be in a community. But when the world sees us loving that way, they'll know who we belong to. Amen? That's when we're going to be loving like our teacher, our savior, our healer, our returning king. This is what John 2 is all about. A letter calling the church to love boldly, to never compromise, to never make an exception on the truth whatsoever but the Christian life is about loving each other discerningly when Jesus gave that command in John 13 to love like he loved us it was right after he washed the disciples feet this was the Passover Seder that they celebrated all of these things would run through as they celebrated communion together and Jesus calls the church, to say, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And at Crossbridge, we end every service at the communion table with the sole purpose of reminding each other around the table that everything we do is about Christ. He's the center of what we do. He's the lens at which we look and love each other through. This is all about Jesus, our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, our coming King. This is how we love each other. Amen. This morning, maybe there's things you're wrestling with and have stuck and you're like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? If you don't know where to start, pick up a soap guide when you walk out. Start soaping with us. Start reading a chapter a day. If you're like, ah, I don't like jumping in midway through. We're in a bunch of letters. You could start wherever you want. Just start somewhere. Start somewhere. And, and if you don't know what to do with it, then plug in with someone else from Crossbridge. And if you say, I need help, and then someone from this community is like, eh, I don't know. Just, you come get me. Oh, I love that conversation. Come get me. I'll study with you, and I'll ask them to join us, and it'll be really awkward for them. Because I don't want to do this alone. You don't want to do this alone. It's because Christ has never designed us to do it alone. We do it together. Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts for communion? At Crossbridge, we celebrate an open table, which simply means that if you have dedicated your life to Jesus and submitted it to him and his teachings, then we welcome you to join us at the table where there is all gluten-free communion set up, the cup, the crackers, um, the prepackaged stuff, and we gather around the table so that we see each other, reminding us we're in this together.
when he was with his disciples, he held up the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you, poured out or broken for you. And then he held up the cup and he said, and this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As we gather around the table together, would you grab a prepackaged or crack a cracker and dip it and bring it back to your seat? We will receive the body and blood of Christ together, remembering Christ and elevating him. Please receive. 